hand for your hard work on especially that one. We welcome those of you who are watching online or listening to our podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of our worshiping congregation today. We welcome you right in. We hope to meet you in person someday. Feel free to join us anytime. Today we continue our sermon series on supernatural living. I don't know about you, but I'm greedy for God. I would like more God in my life. I would like more Jesus in my life. I would like more spirit in my life. I'd love to feel more love and joy and peace and more energy and strength and vitality. I'd like to walk more closely with God. Does that resound with any of you here? Anybody have similar desires in your heart? I know that you do. Today we continue this sermon series, Supernatural Living, with a message I've entitled, Facing My Weakness. Today we're going to do just that. And the scripture lesson today comes to us from Romans chapter 7. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. In my Bible, the section is entitled, Struggling with Sin. The words are on the screen. You may follow along there or turn in your own Bible or tablet or smartphone, whatever you have. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 7. Paul says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I, do not, for I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, we sprang, sin sprang in excuse me, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me, through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. 
honest struggles, honest reflections, maybe you can identify. Let us pray together. Lord and God, we resound with Paul's words and his struggle. It's exasperating. Sometimes we want to do good and we find ourselves being pulled back toward what is wrong. It seems that no matter how good our intentions are, there's uh, something in us that keeps drawing us back to the same old sins. Forgive us, Lord, and just come and speak to us, Lord. Teach us today in this message. Help us, Lord, to soberly reflect upon our own weakness and shortcomings, even that of sin within. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, the children of a family vacationing on the Gulf Coast in Texas, uh, actually the children of the family, came across a soaked and scraggly little dog. Unable to find its owner, the children prevailed upon the parents to take it home with them. Back home, they washed and groomed their new pet. The next morning, they left it alone in their house with food and water and their pet cat. Returning later in the day, they discovered that their cat was deceased. Badly deceased, in fact. It was also clear that their new pet was the culprit. The following day, the parents took the dog to the vet, thinking it wise to have it checked out. The vet informed them that the creature they had taken in was really no dog at all. It was a large African rat. Apparently, it found its way ashore from an ocean-going ship docked at, along the coast. A rat is a rat is a rat. It doesn't matter whether it's cleaned and groomed or dirty and scraggly, whether it lives in a sewer or a palace, whether it's cared for or shunned, wherever it lives, whatever it looks like, however it smells, it will always be a rat. The same could be said of the flesh, that God-hostile, self-centered part of us referred to often as the sinful self, our sinful nature, the carnal nature within you. Whether flesh hangs out at the bar or in church, whether it's self-indulgent or highly disciplined, whether it's intoxicated with alcoholic beverage or by religious success, it's still flesh. A rat is a rat is a rat. No matter how respectable it looks, how popular it may be, how socially acceptable how refined its manners, how religious its conduct, your flesh's fundamental nature remains unaltered. Our flesh nature is sin-riddled through and through with no hope whatsoever of improvement. 
It's why Jesus said in John 6, verse 63, the flesh counts for nothing. Say it with me. The flesh counts for nothing. Jesus didn't say for something, for a little bit. He said nothing. No amount of self-help, positive thinking, therapy, self-discipline, meditation, or medication will ever improve your flesh nature. It is sin that lurks deep within. It will always be flesh and will have absolutely nothing to contribute to your deepening spirituality. Which is why Paul would write these words, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, it is sin. The law is good, but it is no longer I who myself am doing it, but it is sin living in me. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. A rat is a rat is a rat. Our problem is, yours and mine, we don't really believe this which is the number one reason we do not live more supernaturally. It is the number one reason we do not rely on God's provisions within, even that of the new covenant, which we talked about last week, Christ in you. Something keeps getting in the way of experiencing this supernatural life on a higher plane, and that something is your flesh your sinful nature. It's like a barricade, a blockage, a barrier. Sin thwarts the the life of God in you. And until we understand the very depths of our sin, our own inner darkness, we will not learn to rely on the provisions of God, the new covenant within. Only by journeying into the darkness of the soul, facing my weakness, seeing the rat of sin within, will we turn to radical dependence upon God for His resources and that of the Holy Spirit. Today's journey is not pleasant, but it is absolutely necessary that we take a deep, hard look within at the devastation that sin has caused. We must face our weakness. Today's teaching is detailed, and you will want to take out your outline and a pen or pencil, please, and fill it in as we go. I want you to be able to take this home and mull it over this week. So let us now adventure, uh, venture into the darkness and devastation of your inner soul, our flesh, our sinful nature, that we might learn to rely more on God. And today's message will be kind of like traveling through a war zone. You will see carnage. You will see some things that are very unpleasant, even deep within. Just be prepared. There are four things to consider. Number one, we must consider seriously the problem of sin. Just say it with me, the problem of sin. Many decades ago, a columnist for the London Times often ended his articles with the words, what's wrong with the world? You know, he'd write some, about some crazy thing that was happening and say, what's wrong with the world? One day, English author and theologian G.K. Chesterton responded, he wrote, Dear editor, what's wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. 
And that pretty much sums it up. Sin, the problem of sin is personal. It is pervasive. It is present in all of us. The problem of sin is comprehensive and contagious. Hear the Bible's commentary on the problem of sin. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Not a very sunny commentary, is it? Ecclesiastes 9.3 tells us that the hearts of people are full of evil. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Two categories of sin. The first category, sins of the flesh. These are outward actions like drunkenness, adultery, stealing, gossip, etc. Things which violate God's moral standards for external holiness. In Galatians 5, Paul says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. These are the things that we usually think of when we define sin, these kind of outward actions. But there are also sins of the Spirit. These are things that are deep within They are often hidden, things like pride, envy, being judgmental, self-righteous, unforgiving, things that violate God's standard for internal holiness. And of the two categories of sin, both are wrong, but sins of the Spirit can be almost more deadly. Here's what C.S. Lewis, that great Christian author, wrote. He said, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins, if you're going to compare. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasures of putting other people down, of bossing people around, of patronizing, of backbiting, of judging, the pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside of me, says C.S. Lewis, competing with the human self, which I must try to overcome. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, righteous person who goes to church regularly may be far closer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. The younger brother was guilty of sins of the flesh. He, he went off. He was led by his desires. He, he took dad's inheritance and he spent it all in, in wild, lascivious living. The older brother was guilty of sins of the spirit. Remember when the son came back, his father welcomed him in, killed the the fatted calf and threw a big party. And what was the attitude of the older brother? Self-righteousness, judgment, resentment. He didn't want to go in for the party. The fact is we all suffer from both sins of the flesh and spirit. There is no one righteous, no, not one, says the Bible. We have the problem of sin. Number two, we must consider the power of sin. Just say it with me, the power of sin. Sin affects five areas of your life powerfully and adversely. Number one, your mind, your mind. Your mind was given you to discover and ponder God's character, God's truth, the mysteries of His universe. 
Instead, we too often use our mind to embrace false ideas, believe and imagine the worst about others, to engage in negative self-defeatist thinking, to become depressed, and to rationalize our sins. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Truth is, we don't think as God thinks. His ways, His thoughts are so much higher than ours, are they not? Our minds are tainted by the power of sin. Number two, our emotions are also tainted, affected adversely by the power of sin. Emotions were given for loving God and others with, with passion, with feeling that we would feel something as we live our life in this world. It's just not all mechanical. But they too, our emotions, have been degraded and depraved of goodness. Titus 3 says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's a negative emotion. Our emotions have been derailed by the devil, the fact is. We love what we should hate and we hate what we should love. The power of sin affects your mind. It affects your emotions. Thirdly, it affects your will, your will. Your will is God's gift of choice to kind of determine or dedicate yourself to go in a certain direction. I'm willing this. I'm going to move in this direction. But like a rebellious child, our will has become defiant toward God. Isaiah 53 tells us, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. We know what we should do, but most often we blatantly refuse to do it. Consider Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God said to them as he placed them in this beautiful garden, you can eat from any tree, any of the fruit of any of the tree. You can have any of the vegetables you want in this great and glorious garden, but there's just one tree I don't want you to eat from. Don't eat from that one. What did Adam and Eve do? They made a beeline right for that one tree in the middle of a whole forest garden, and they ate it. This is how our wills are contaminated by sin. The very thing God says don't do, we want to do. Number four, sin powerfully adversely affects your conscience, your conscience. Your conscience is an internal alarm system from God to warn when moral boundaries are in danger of being crossed. But because of sin, your conscience too has become defiled and is no longer a reliable system or moral compass. The plumb line is crooked. True north is no longer true north in your own mind, in your own conscience. 1 Corinthians 4 says, My conscience is clear, said Paul, but that does not make me innocent, for it is the Lord who judges me. And just because you have a clear conscience doesn't mean that you are without sin. Even your conscience can become distorted. You might feel good about yourself, and you can be totally wrong with God. Number five. Your longings, your desires have been powerfully, adversely affected by sin. God has created us with deep yearnings and dreams in your heart for relationship, significance, uh, to be productive, connection, for impact. Ideally, these longings are to be fulfilled through God, God's people, His mission and kingdom work in our world. 
But as Paul says in Romans 3, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Our heart's desires have been rerouted. Rather than drink from the living water of God's refreshing spirit, we drink spiritually at muddy watering holes in an attempt to quench this God-given thirst for Him. Remember the sea lion from our first message in this series. He got along in the water hole even though he was created for the sea. Jeremiah 2, 2, verse 13 tells us, My people, says the Lord, have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Friends, not only have we turned away from God, we've turned to lesser gods, our own cisterns, which cannot hold water and do not give life. And in short, our hearts have become so utterly and wholly infected by the cancer of sin within us that our wiring for godly living and joy has become short-circuited. And until we realize that in our fallen state, we much more closely resemble Adolf Hitler than Jesus Christ, until we, we realize that, we have not yet grasped the Bible's teaching on the problem and power of sin. There's the problem of sin. There's the power of sin. Thirdly, there is the predicament of sin. Say it with me. The predicament of sin you say, well, pastor, it feels like you're kind of beating us up today. I mean, this is kind of heavy stuff. I mean, is it really that bad? You say, I'm not that bad. It's like, you know, at least I'm, you know, not as bad as, you know, Rick, you know, or, you know, not as bad as Rhonda over there, you know. I mean, you know, so, no, you know, right? So, well, it depends on whose standard you're judging yourself with, right? I'm just messing, just playing with you guys. You know that. Are you looking at it from man's view or God's? From our point of view, maybe not so bad. At least I'm better than so-and-so. But from God's perspective and standard of holy righteousness, the fact is we've all fallen short. Too often we have a street-level view of goodness. You walk down a street of a busy city, uh, the sidewalk, and uh, some people are tall and some are short. And it's easy to kind of gauge yourself. You know, I'm, oh, I'm a little bit taller than he or she, and I'm, I'm a, but oh, he's taller than I am. And you can kind of gauge yourself. It's easy to compare and judge how you rate. And unfortunately, that's how we kind of relate spiritual things. But if you were to look down on that same street from a hundred-story skyscraper, everybody on the street would appear equally tiny. In fact, probably like little ants. Guess which perspective is God's? Imagine God's assessment from the heights of heaven looking down upon us. He doesn't grade on a curve. Whether God looks down on humanity, what does He see when He does? Psalm 53 tells us, God looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. doesn't matter how good you think you are. Believe yourself to be. The true standard for righteousness is God's, not ours, not yours or mine. 
God said in Leviticus 11, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Say it with me. Be holy because I am holy. Jesus said in Matthew 5, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, good, good luck with that, right? Um, Jesus also said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. I mean, how do you stack up against God's holy commands? Fact is, we're in a predicament. We're at odds with a holy and righteous God. This is the predicament of sin. And just in case you're feeling like, you know, maybe you're not totally convinced, there are three things, that, three ways that God judges us. Write these down. Number one, what we do. God judges what we do. God measures all of our actions, all of our words against His standards of Scripture. To violate God's command is a sin. There are sins of commission, things that we commit, that we do, and there are sins of omission, things that we should have done but did not do. And meeting this standard is harder than we realize. Our standard as New Testament Christians is not the Ten Commandments. We can say, well, you know what, maybe I've kept the Ten Commandments. I'm a pretty good person. Say, well, you know, I think I've done that. I haven't killed anybody lately. You know, I haven't stolen from anybody, um, you know, and, um, and I'm, I'm happy with my life. I don't pine for, I don't covet other things and other people. Say, no, the standard is not the Old Testament. It is the New Testament law. Jesus comes along, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Who measures up to this standard of love? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Who does that all the time? Nobody. Who meets this standard? No one. God judges what we do. God judges why we do it. Why we do it. This is your motives, your motivation for doing what you do. Everything we do, according to the biblical standard, must be done for the glory of God. Say it with me. For the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul said, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Which is why we read in Romans 3.23 that those who sin have fallen short of what? Of the glory of God. If we avoid adultery only out of fear of getting caught or from the motive of not wanting to destroy our marriage or for concern of the children, but without any concern for God's name and God's glory, then that avoidance, as commendable as it is, does not really qualify as good from God's perspective. Motives are extremely important to God. How many of you know God looks at the heart? God looks at the heart, not at the outer appearance. What are your motives for obeying God? Are you doing it to look good? to build up your spiritual resume, to kind of assert yourself as a sort of a spiritual authority over other people, or are you doing it truly and honorably for the glory of God, period? What drives you? Because it's what's on the inside here that counts. God judges what you do. God judges why you do it. And thirdly, God judges how you do it. How we do things is, is as important to God as what we do and why we do them. The ends does not justify the means. 
God measures how we do something by the biblical standard that everything be done in active and continual dependence on Christ by abiding and remaining in Him. For any of our deeds to qualify as good in God's eyes, He Himself must do it through us. Okay, notice how hard this gets, right? It's like, oh man, pastor, shut up. You know, I mean, this is just, you're making us feel miserable here, right? This is terrible. Who measures up? And yet, here it is, right? I mean, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a person remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, you can do nothing, nothing. I mean, yeah, we can do some things in this world, but nothing that's going to last, nothing for the glory of God, unless it's done through the Spirit and the power of Christ in us. Okay? You might obey God out of a sincere desire to bring glory and honor to God, but how do you obey God? By gutting it out dutifully on your own strength or by relying on God's grace and strength, the Christ in you? Okay? Notice the bar just keeps getting higher and higher, right? It's like, oh my goodness, you know, what, what have I done? Oh, why? Now I've got to look at my motives. Now I've got to look at how I do it. You know, oh my goodness, I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless. We're in a huge predicament. Houston, we have a problem. You know, we're doomed, right? I mean, this is it, right? We're in a predicament with a, with a holy God. We as sinners. Which leads us to our final point. Today we consider not only the problem of sin, the power of sin, the predicament of sin, but we consider the provision for sin. Just say it with me. The provision for sin. God's holy standards on all of these things, on all of these levels, has only been accomplished once in history by one life, and it isn't yours or mine. Only Jesus Christ did all of the will of God for the glory of God through the power of God. He did it all perfectly. The point of today's teaching is not to make you feel down or depressed, but to make you feel desperate for more of God, more of Jesus, more of His Spirit in you. Because no one measures up. We're all in the same boat here. Nobody's better than anybody. Nobody's pointing fingers. There's not an ounce of judgment in today's message. It's all, this is us, we together. This is us. Sounds like a great title for a television series. This is us. Anybody here ever have any heart procedures or heart surgery done? Anybody ever have something? You have something? Okay, some of you have, right? How'd you feel after? Did you feel better? I hope you felt better. A little bit more energy with a new heart, right? A little strength, you know. Well, God looks down from, on, from heaven. He looks down upon us and His children, and He realizes this. Which is why Paul will write, nothing good lives in me. So a rat is a rat is a rat. What am I going to do? And the Lord, the Lord has a predicament on his hands too. But he says, you know what? I'm going to do something really, really radical. I'm going to perform heart surgery on you. I'm going to give you a heart transplant. I can do it. I'm the great physician. God is the, the surgeon. He's a heart surgeon. Did you know that? 
He doesn't come to, to polish and smooth up your heart of stone. He comes to put a new and living, beating heart in you. Deuteronomy 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. Jeremiah 24, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. Say it with me, all their heart. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart, says the Lord. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, one that is soft and tender. This is the provision for sin. It is God's gift of a new heart, the heart that we all desperately need. And what a heart it is. Rather than being cold and unyielding to God, inclined toward evil and captivated by foolishness, your new heart is warmly animated toward God, inclined toward righteousness, captivated by truth and overflowing with love. Your new heart is, in fact, the very heart of Jesus in you. It is a part of the provisions of the new covenant, Christ in you. The heart of Jesus is beating in you. Amen? The question is, which heart are you relying on? Which heart? You see, in the bestowing of your new heart at your conversion, God does not remove your old heart, not yet. We must trust Christ for salvation. Our sinful nature is not removed. When we do, one day it will be, and sin will be totally annihilated, eradicated from, from our lives, from who we are, and from this world. But until that day, there will always be a godless, proud, innately wicked part of us that can never be improved. But also, within each and every believer, even you, there is a godly, righteous, truth-seeking, loving, Christ-adoring heart that can never be destroyed by the devil or anyone else. Stifled by passions, maybe, other passions, maybe overrun by the desires of your competing sinful heart from time to time, maybe trampled over by your own ego and pride once in a while, but it will never be destroyed. Because by faith, when you receive Jesus Christ, you receive the provisions of the new covenant, even Jesus' heart in you. This heart is the deepest, truest reality about you. Your new heart. It is God's greatest gift to you, and it is your deepest need because a rat is a rat is a rat. And so today I believe that God is inviting you and me to face our weakness. Okay, how many sermons have you heard on sin lately, right? Okay. Whew, today you got a whopper, all right? It's a lot here, probably too much. But I think God is inviting us to face who we are, to look in the mirror. 
and say, deep down in my heart, even on my best days, there are things inside of me that are not holy and godly and pleasing to the Lord. It's my weakness. I don't do what I want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. If I were to give you today a life jacket, here, here's a life jacket. Say, huh? What? Is it raining out? You know, is there a flood coming? You probably wouldn't even really care, right? So you wouldn't take, maybe you'd hold on to it and you'd politely, oh, thank you, pastor. And you'd walk out with it and then you'd, you know, set it aside or leave it here, you know. But if I gave you a life jacket and you were on a sinking ship, in the middle of a storm and downpouring rain, you'd probably cling to that life jacket. You'd probably put it on and strap yourself in because you don't know what's going to happen. We're going down. The ship is sinking. We're all sinking. Deep in sin, as the old hymn says. And we need a life jacket. And God is giving it to us. Not just for salvation, not just at your conversion, but for everyday living. We need that life jacket on. To say, Lord, I need you. I need the resources of your new covenant. I need a new heart in me. And thankfully, God gives it. The end of ourselves is the beginning of God. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death, cries out Paul. Oh, but thanks be to, to God. Praise him. Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we love you and we thank you today for just the reminder of who we really are deep down inside, no matter how groomed we may be, no matter how pleasing we may be, how popular we may be, uh, Lord, there is a deep, a deep sinner within. Even the best of our actions do not often measure up to your holy standards. And so, Lord, we just are reminded again today of our need for you, our need for Jesus, our need for a new heart. And thankfully, you give it, you provide it. So, Lord, forgive us for our sins and just help us from here on to rely more and more on you to, to just move at every impulse of your spirit only. Forgive us, Lord, for getting caught in the rat race and routines and rituals of life. May we experience your grace, Lord, in all that we do. And this we ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The band will now perform present a song and we're just going to prepare ourselves for holy communion in just a moment and uh, this is a good oldie but goodie you are my strength let's stand as we sing it together